So week by week, for the last nine weeks, we've been working chapter by chapter through the 8th century B.C. prophet Hosea. And this morning we come to chapter 9. Hosea 9 continues the theme and the threat of exile for the people of God. Exile because of the vile spiritual adultery they have committed against the Lord. What Hosea the prophet says is covenant-breaking with Israel's husband, who was the Lord Himself. Hosea reveals the relationship of, of Israel to God as being like a marriage. And Hosea is bringing the hard news, the bad news, that Israel has been like an unfaithful wife. She's broken covenant with the Lord. She's wounded the Lord's heart. She's broken affection with the Lord. And Hosea, as a prophet, is speaking these hard and uncomfortable words most week of the consequences of sin. And Hosea is warning that Israel will be purged from the promised land she'd been given and that their relationship with the Lord would be cut off like a divorce because of the infatuation and flirting with pagan Baalism and the religious worship of the surrounding neighbors of Israel. It may sound crass or rude, but really what Hosea is accusing Israel of, Israel is the covenant people of God, is that Israel is married to the one true God. But she's been holding hands and flirting and playing footsie with pagan gods. And Hosea brings these hard words, these uncomfortable words. A lot of strong language in Hosea chapter 9. And late last night, for better or for worse, I made a decision. I made the decision not to read all 17 verses of Hosea chapter 9 because my sermon is not able to touch on them. But they're included in the bulletin. And I'd encourage you to read those later. Um, but, but here's the, 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 the riddle key to, to understanding some of the harsh language that you'll read there. It's all language of covenant curses, most of which we're prepared for in Deuteronomy chapter 28, for what it means to not be the people of God. And that's the language he applies to the covenant people of God. And, and it's supposed to be very stirring of them, very alarming to them. So what I'll do this morning is I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and then verse 7. And I think we will get the gist of chapter 9. At least that's my hope and my prayer. So Hosea chapter 9, verses 1 through 4 and then verse 7. Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. 
They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please Him. In verse 7, the days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many, and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person a maniac. Let's pray and ask that God would bless our understanding of His Word. Lord, would You open our eyes, even if they're tired. Lord, would You open our ears, even if they're dull. Lord, would You open our hearts, especially when they're stubborn. And Lord, would You teach us what is true, what is true about ourselves, what has always been true of God's people, and what we must do. That's my prayer, Lord, for every one of us. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So in previous weeks, and and if you've not been with us, this is my effort to try to catch us up for the big picture of Hosea. In previous weeks, we've heard that Israel has had memory loss. They have forgotten their covenant Lord. Israel has been hard of hearing. They've been rebuffing the prophets, not being open to the instruction of God's Word, and that Israel has had heart problems. They're hardened in their affections and in their worship of the one true God. And so we playfully but sincerely saw that, like a physical person, Israel has memory loss, hardness of hearing, and heart problems in their relationship with the Lord. And we sought to rightly apply that all of these same issues are typical of God's people in every era. And it's certainly true in our own. Just that's being honest about who we are and who God is. Well, this morning, similarly, we're going to consider other, what I'll call, recurring problems that God's people in every era have had. And once again, these two are certainly true of us and our own present era in church history. So what we see to be true of Israel, we always see to be true of ourselves as well. God's people have always had the same recurring problems. And there are four that we'll consider this morning. The first is the problem of self-perception, how we see ourselves. The second is the problem of self-deception, that we all deceive ourselves. The third is the problem of self-affirmation, that we are quick to affirm ourselves in our sin. And fourth, God's people have always had the problem of self-pacification, appeasing ourselves. So those are the four things we'll consider in greater detail. But first, I'll begin like this. In 1988, which I like to refer to as one of the greatest years of all time, was my senior year in high school. 
lots of good memories from 1988. And those of you of the right age would remember the name Bobby McFerrin, who had a number one song in 1988 called Don't Worry, Be Happy. Right? Everybody loved this song. It was the feel-good song, not just of the year, but of the decade or maybe a lifetime. I don't know. But I've, I've chosen that to begin this, and, and you see I've titled the sermon the opposite of that for a reason. So Bobby McFerrin's song was so popular, it was actually an a cappella song. There are no instruments in the song. And at that point it was, and I think it still is, the only number one song that was ever a cappella. Everything that sounds like an instrument in the song is actually his own voice. He was one of those very talented people who could do that. But one of the reasons the song was so popular, not just because it sounded good, really good, but it was the world view. It was the mentality of the song, which says, don't worry, be happy. Whatever it is you're living through, it's not so bad. You're not so bad. So he would say, essentially, come to the islands, man. Take it easy, man. Life is good, man. Don't worry about anything. And everybody loved that song. It was a feel-good song. It's a worldview of sorts, where you say, just keep being who you are. You're awesome. You're great. Life's good. Now, that is 100% the opposite of Hosea's perspective of the people of God and how they should feel and how they should respond. So if Hosea were to critique that song, he would retitle it and he would say, Worry, don't be happy. Your problem is that you're not worrying and that you're making yourself to feel happy. And that sounds so unchristian, doesn't it? But I hope that even in the pastoral prayer, I chose that text for a reason, where in the New Testament, we're told to turn your laughter to mourning. Take things seriously, people. Because God's people have always had this pattern of making themselves to feel very comfortable with who they are and what they're doing. But both Old Testament and New Testament, we're warned don't get complacent. Don't get comfortable in your sin. So Hosea would say, and he does say in verse 1, do not rejoice. Don't be happy. You need to worry about your spiritual condition. So here are the four main points. It's, or the four problems, I'll say. It's the problem of self-perception. It was true of them. It's true of us. We have a problem with self-perception. That is with how we see ourselves. We have to be told in the Bible to not think too highly of yourselves, but think of yourselves with what? Sober judgment. Because we all tend to have this wrong perception of ourselves. We don't see things for how they really are. We don't see ourselves for how we really are. So years ago, I took students from Erskine to lunch towards Abbeville. And it is no longer there. But there was a little shop, a little deli of sorts that I liked to go to. And it was fantastic. They made the best donuts. They made the best snacks. You could go there and have sandwiches made to order. But on this one particular occasion, I walked into this shop 
and we were going to have sandwiches made. And I walked up to the meat and the cheese counter, you know, the, the glass-fronted counter where you can see the product on the other side. And I saw something I had not seen there before. The sharp cheddar cheese was covered with mold. And so we did not have sandwiches that day. But we did get a sermon illustration out of it. And here's what it is. Now, this shop was, it was immaculate. It was a great shop. I loved it. And the people there behind the counter were very busy people who did very good work. Their food was outstanding. But they had a limited perspective. From where they were busy on one side of the, of, of the counter, they couldn't see what we could see. And so whoever had the job of checking the cheese fell down on the job. Because from their busy perspective, things were going great. But somebody like me could walk in and very quickly say, Ooh, that's gross. And that is a sense in which Hosea the prophet is saying, You're not seeing yourselves, people of God, Israel, for how things really are. Now, the illustration works a number of ways. We're pretty busy people behind the counter, too. Maybe we're doing some pretty good things. But we're so busy, and maybe even busy doing religious things, that we may not have a right perception of who we are. We have a problem with self-perception. Charles Spurgeon says this, There are two great lessons which every man must learn and learn by experience before he can be a Christian. First, he must learn that sin is an exceeding great and evil thing. And he must learn also that the blood of Christ is an exceedingly precious thing and is able to save unto the uttermost them that come unto it. You see, there are two pieces. There's the bad news and the good news. And I've talked about this almost every week. It's through the badness of the bad news that the goodness of the good news becomes sweet to us. And that's what Spurgeon is saying. And every one of us needs to come to the point that we understand the hideousness of moldy cheese in a spiritual life. Right? It's repulsive. And that's who we are. Whatever our perspective of ourselves is, that's the right perspective. But we don't stop there. We also know that the gospel is true. That Jesus forgives sinners. And those two truths, those twin truths, we ought to know and know well so that we have a right perspective of ourselves. The right self-perception. Secondly, the problem of self-deception. God's people have always deceived themselves. We'll make ourselves to believe something that is, is true when it's, when it's not true. I remember uh, just a few years ago laughing about conduct in my life where um, I would justify going to the Chinese buffet because I would order a Diet Coke. They cancel each other out, right, doctors? Isn't that how that works in the house? Drink a Diet Coke, you can go to the Chinese buffet. You know what that's called? 
self-deception, right? I wanted that to be true. But that's not true. And I knew it, but I just would justify it just a little bit. And you and I do the same thing. We do it spiritually. We do it any which way, every which way we can do it. Listen, some of you, in order to not be late, you will, you will change the clock. You'll change the time on the clock. You'll back it up a little bit. That's self-deception. Just live according to what the time really is. That's like uh, going to your weight scale and, and changing the weight on the weight scale so that you feel better about yourself, right? That's self-deception. We play these kinds of games in our heads and in our hearts, and let's call it what it is. It's self-deception. We have always been that way. C.S. Lewis says this, When we have a view of sin that is small, the wrath of God seems a barbarous doctrine. But when able to truly see and perceive the badness of our sin in comparison to God's holiness and goodness, we quickly see how great is our corruption and are made to feel the weight of our sinfulness. This is indispensable to a real understanding of the Christian faith. And that's what we want. We want a real understanding of the Christian faith. No more self-deception. No more pretending that things are not true of us when they really are. But God's people have a long history of self-deception. Here's a question. If you were self-deceived, would you know it? Maybe, maybe not. There's a level of self-deception that is so deep that we, we've truly deceived ourselves. And then we play games where we pretend that things are one way and not another. But God's people have always had a problem with self-deception, and it has never worked for their good. Third problem. God's people have always had a problem of self-affirmation. Affirming themselves even in their sin. You might remember from last week's sermon in chapter 8 of Hosea, the Lord says that He is perched above His people like an eagle or a vulture. And you remember that that word can mean either eagle or vulture, but either illustration works. Either Israel is dead meat, they are spiritually dead, and the vulture being a, a, a bird of, not a bird of prey, but a scavenger, is going to devour the dead people of God. Or as an eagle, a bird of prey is going to come and take the life of Israel. It's a, it's a bird of judgment in either picture. But do you remember Israel's response to that pronouncement by the prophet? Hosea, they says, Wait, we are Israel. We know you. And there's the self-affirmation. It's how God's people have always been. Wait, wait, wait. We're your treasured possession. We're your special people in the earth. You love us. We love you. And Hosea says, you don't know the Lord. You've broken covenant with Him. You've abandoned Him. You've run to Baal, the, the religion of the Canaanites. You don't know the Lord. And it's that same spirit of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, where He says the people will say to Him, Lord, we know You. Have we not cast out demons in Your name? Have we not done this, that, and the other? And what does Jesus say? Away from me. I never knew you. 
And that's, that's the sin, the problem of self-affirmation. And you and I will do that. You, you know what it is to be wrong in an argument and to know you're wrong, but to dig in deeper, right? Affirming yourself. God's people have always had these same problems. Self-perception, self-deception, self-affirmation. And then the fourth one, the problem of what I call self-pacification. Self-pacification. Making ourselves to feel okay. Not to feel the weight of sin. Not to feel conviction of sin. So you know that we've been blessed and raised four children in the Patrick family. And this is an illustration from many years ago. But for whatever reason, you remember, or you know, uh, what, what pacifiers are. Or in your home, you might call them passies, right? Um, for some reason, I think it was because of an illustration I'd used, we playfully called them pacification devices. So we'd be looking for a passy, and I'd be like, where's the pacification device? And though we might have 40 in the home, you know you can never find one when you need it. It's in the couch cushions or wherever. But you need the pacification device. And you know what that is. It is something to bring soothing comfort to a little one. Even if they have a little bit of appetite, you maybe can bring a, a soothing comfort. Now, if it's a big appetite, the bet's off. But for some appetites, some discomforts, the pacification device will alleviate the situation. So that is the sense in which I'm speaking to. God's people have a long history of self-pacification. Looking somewhere to someone or something other than God Himself to pacify us from whatever miseries we're experiencing in life. Whatever discomforts, whatever soothing we need or want, we will look to our own pacification devices. And that's where you need to fill in the blank honestly for what it is. It can be people. It can be places. It can be food. It can be drink. But all of it is a pacification device that does not serve us well in the end. God's people have a long history of having all kinds of self-pacification devices. For these people, at this particular time in their history, it was, it was Baalism and trusting in the God of Baal to provide fertility to provide what they thought they needed most. And that would pacify them. That would give them comfort and hope. And remember, Yahweh burned with anger about their looking to a pacification device other than Him as their covenant Lord. And the same thing is true for us. So in all these things, self-perception, self-deception, self-affirmation, self-pacification, all of these things are problems with God's covenant people that have Yahweh, their covenant Lord, burn with anger that they would not look to Him. And we do the same thing. The same nature, the same lostness is in every one of us. But just as God's people always have had the same recurring problems... God's people have always had the same need. And this is where we will conclude the sermon. 
The same need God's covenant people have always had is this. The need for the conviction of their sins. That is that they know that they are sinners and that they know what their sin is. The need for conviction of sin. Now remember the role of this Old Testament prophet, every Old Testament prophet was similar. I've told you two pictures in which I think it's helpful to understand. The first is the role of the Old Testament prophet as a mirror showing God's people who they really are with his words, with his teaching, with his prophecies. And then secondly, it's the role of the Old Testament prophet as what I've called a pot stirrer. And you remember we talked about how these pots... Pots of food need to be stirred up or they glaze over and get hard and, and, and undesirable. And so the prophet in that way was used by God to stir things up in the hearts of God's people. And that is the first step towards conviction of sin. Seeing yourself for who you really are as God sees you and then being spoken those true words by someone willing to stir things up. And that is speaking the Word of God to the people of God. It's the Word and Spirit of God that really do the stirring, though God may use a human instrument to bring that spoken or written Word into your life. So God's people have always needed a mirror. They've always needed a pot stirrer. That's Hosea, who Hosea was. That's who Hosea still is as we are hearing his message even this morning. And the second thing is the conviction of sin. The conviction of sin. Feeling the guilt of sin and feeling the weight of sin. God's people have always needed to know and to feel the guilt of their sin and the weight of their sin. Now, we live in a very therapeutic culture. And that, th that therapeutic culture is so prevalent that some of you maybe just winced when I said God's people should feel the weight and the guilt of their sin. Because we're in such a therapeutic culture, we will respond to that and say, no, God's people should never feel the weight or the guilt of sin. That's not true. It all begins with feeling the weight and the guilt of your sin. We are alleviated of that when the gospel is applied to us. And the rest of the Christian life, we can have moments of being convicted of sin and being alleviated of that guilt as we know our trust is in Jesus. But thinking we should not ever feel guilt or weight of sin is not really taking Old Testament and New Testament together. Let me give you a few examples. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, paragraph 2, I've, I've summarized it into a few sentences, but it says this, By it, that is a conviction of sin, a sinner is given sight and sense, not only of the danger of sin, but also how filthy and detestable their sin is how it is contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and then realize their desperate need is for God's mercy in Christ. They are given grief for their sin, hatred of their sin, 
so that they desire to turn away from it in order to turn toward and to draw near to God and to obedience to His ways and His commandments for living. The way that's worded suggests that it is a gift of God to feel the conviction of your sin, to know the wrongness of sin, to even learn to hate your sin, and to give your sin to Christ that He may give you the mercy that you are literally dying for. So feeling the guilt of sin is not a bad thing. Remember Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Paul says, O wretched man that I am. He's feeling his wretchedness. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Feeling the weight and the guilt of our sin is a part of our embracing the gospel. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Holy King, the Lord Almighty. He feels his woe, he feels his ruin, and it draws him to God himself. Psalm 32, David's own experience. He says, when I kept silent in my sin, that is when I would not confess it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But when I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you see? It's a push-pull relationship. We need to feel the weight, the conviction of sin. It is a gift of God and how He works in His people's lives. This week I reread uh, book two of Augustine's confessions on his life. And I'll, I'll just say this quickly. Um, if you're familiar with this, this will come quickly. But even if not, I think there's a point to be made here. But Augustine, converted later in life, did a deep dive on his own heart to think back to his childhood and why he did the things that he did. And this is where he records as, how as a teenager, he had a memory of stealing pears from a farmer's pear tree with some of his buddies. And he says as a young adult, years later, he's reflecting back on that. And he's like, why did I do that? Why as a teenager was I so determined to steal pears? And as he reflected on it, he said, you know what? We had better pears at home. It wasn't the quality of the pear that I was interested in. And he, he did a deep dive on his heart and he concluded, I did it because I wanted to rebel. Rebellion was in my heart. And to rebel with others was this kind of dark fellowship. And I, I, loved, I loved rebelling. Remember how we talked about Satan as a vandal. and Satan loves vandalism. It's the same nature. It's the same spirit. I just wanted to steal for the sake of stealing, he said. That's doing a deep dive on our heart and realizing how ruined 
and how corrupt we really are. And he would feel the weight and conviction of his sin, and it would draw him to Jesus. He actually says this, This evil in me was foul, but I loved it. My beauty washed away, and in your sight, I became putrid. I will love you, Lord, and I will give you thanks and confession to your name, because you have forgiven me such great evils and nefarious deeds. I attribute to your great grace and mercy that you have melted my sins away like ice. I confess that everything has been forgiven, both the evil things I did of my own accord and those which I did not do because of your guidance. So it's through the confession of sin, feeling the putrid nature of our sin, that Jesus becomes sweet to us. The role of the Old Testament prophet is to bring conviction of sin. And the role of conviction of sin is to bring gospel hope for covenant renewal. That is that relationship, that marriage with God that has been violated there is the hope of it being restored because God is merciful. And lastly, the way that relationship is, is renewed, the way that covenant is reestablished, in the words of Jesus, it's twofold. It's repent and believe the gospel, and it's go and sin no more. That's what Jesus says in Mark 1 and in John 8. Repent and believe the gospel. Everything the gospel says about your sin and your sinfulness, embrace it. Believe it. It's all true. But equally, you embrace the good news that your sins are forgiven in Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. But it all begins with a conviction of sin. And Hosea, as the prophet, is doing everything he can in all these metaphors about dumb birds and slack bows and flat cakes not turned over. In everything he said, he wants them to feel their guilt, to know their guilt. Why? So that they're embarrassed? So that they're ridiculed? So that they're shamed? No so that they might be renewed in their covenant relationship with the Lord. They might be refreshed, that they might, in Hosea's words, return to Him. Return to their husband that they had forsaken. And in that way, Hosea is the gospel in the Old Testament. It's the invitation to come, to return, and to remain in Him. Dane Ortland says this, we don't feel the weight of our sin because of our sin. If we saw with deep clarity just how insidious and pervasive and revolting sin is, we would know that we are worthy of intense judgment of divine proportion. But just as we can hardly fathom the divine ferocity awaiting those apart from Christ, it is equally true that we can hardly fathom the divine tenderness already resting on those who are in Christ. Do you hear it? Do you feel it? It's the badness of the bad news 
that makes the goodness of the good news so sweet for us. Let's pray that we would know that, embrace it, believe it, and live according to it. Lord, that is our prayer, that we would embrace the truth about who we are, that you would be so kind and merciful as to bring the conviction of sin upon us, that we would feel the weight of it, that we would feel the horror of being in your holy presence without the covering of your blood. And so, Lord, we thank you for your mercy, that it is rich, it is free, that you are quick to pardon and cleanse and forgive those who look to you by faith in Jesus. And Lord, that is what we pray that we are. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.